Hey friends, I'm Bryant Russ, and in partnership with Christian Schools International, you're listening to Lighting a Fire. And so when people say, how can you believe there's a good God after all of this thing happened? I would say again, God is good. God is good. He's always going after our hearts. And when our hearts align with Him, God's goodness can be seen. Hey friends, we're incredibly fortunate to have Rebecca Dang on the show today. Rebecca is the author of What They Meant for Evil, How a Lost Girl of Sudan Found Healing, Peace, and Purpose in the Midst of Suffering. Rebecca's story is absolutely incredible. I strongly recommend you buy a copy of her book and read the full story. Today you'll get just a little glimpse into the things she experienced starting at the age of six as war came to her village and she had to flee. As we move into Thanksgiving, I've just been so deeply challenged and encouraged at the same time by Rebecca's story. You know, she's, she's been making me reflect on some experiences. My wife and I, years ago, participated in a refugee foster care program. And one story in particular, uh, one morning I was, I was getting breakfast ready and I dropped this giant, uh, like, two pints or something ridiculous of blueberries fell out of the fridge and they scattered all over the floor. And I turned to this 11-year-old refugee foster daughter and I said, oh man, it's a bad day. And she looked at me with just genuine confusion and she said, wait, why? And in this moment, I realized, yeah, my definition of a bad day is so very different than this little girl who at 11 years of age has experienced suffering like I never have. Hearing stories of brothers and sisters who have suffered and yet have such hope challenge that sense of entitlement in me, especially in this season of COVID where uh, I certainly don't mean to minimize genuine suffering that, that so many are indeed experiencing. But for me, I, I have at times taken little disappointments and blown them out of proportion. And hearing the story of Rebecca, her resilience, her love for God, and her desire to be a servant, that it just blows me out of the water and totally reorients my attitude and I think makes me a little bit more like Jesus. I think you'll experience the same as you hear her story this morning. I want to give a big shout out and thank you to Ariox for sponsoring today's conversation. As synchronous in-class and remote learning becomes increasingly important for schools of all shapes and sizes, Nebulo by Ariox is a single platform learning solution that provides students, faculty, and administrators the tools they need to succeed and grow. Check out this incredibly helpful platform at ariox.com slash nebulo. So Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us today. Can you start by giving us just a little glimpse at your life in South Sudan. What was it like growing up in your village? Thank you so much, Brian. I appreciate you um, inviting me here to speak with you today. My life, a glimpse of my life back in the village was really a beautiful life, a life that a typical ages zero to five, six years old live. You know, I was in a small village. We didn't have, uh, we didn't have uh, like running water or... Um, lights you know we didn't have all of that but we had all the love we have we had mm. over 
maybe like 300 villagers together. And uh, we, uh, I come from a Dinka tribe, which mainly um, is a cattle herder tribe. And uh, they grow sorghum and uh, cones and beans and calabash and all different kind of squash uh, for stable food. And the area that I was growing or the village that I was in is called Arwaimayan. So yeah, it was, it was green, it was large, it was beautiful. Growing up, there's just all kind of wild animals and birds and, uh, and just like villagers, you know, there's a harvest time. So when there's a harvest time, people go from each family, you know, like each garden to the next one. And then, you know, I will hear the people singing and, you know, you know, mothers and aunties making us food. And then you see uncles and grandpas tending the cattle. We are a cattle um, herders, like I say. So there's a lot of cows. My mm. family, we had a lot growing up. So it was just a vibrant, vibrant childhood, vibrant life. Um, I have heard that there was war going on, but it seemed like far away, right? And it was interesting, you know, when we heard of the news of coronavirus. And I was like, yeah, it kind of took me back to that time where it's like, oh, it's something far away. We don't have to worry about it. And suddenly reach us, right? And so, mm. you know, I grew up hearing there's a war that is being fought. And I knew that there's a war because my dad was one of the commanders fighting the North Sudan government. So he was in and out. But to me, it did not even make sense because the war never reached my village. So I thought that was just a kind of like a makeup story people talking about mm, until mm. one day when I was saying that it hit my village. So yes, I have a typical happy childhood. Um, having three meals a day, really, I never had, I never went hungry. And uh, sometimes this is the thing I keep telling people is like, Africa, like the Africa that we, we portray in the media, is not typical. You know, the war and all of that, that's not typical. The war arisen, and people used to be not having war and just like enjoying their life. And then, yeah, all of this conflict started. And then they have a ripple effect, right? So, if you know, the genocide in 94 in Congo, apartheid in South Africa, and South Sudan with the Islamic struggle between the northerners and southerners who are mostly African traditional believers or Christian, you know, so there's a ripple thing that have been going on, but that was not a typical, like if you go back to the 70s and early 80s, you know, thing were stable. And for me, things were really normal until 1991, sometime in August or September when my village was attacked. And then suddenly I had to just run. Mm -hmm. You were six years old if I remember correctly, when everything changed. Can you, yes. can you tell us a little bit about even just the first days when, when things began to change for you and your life? Yeah, so the first day, uh, you know, it was waking up in the middle of night and just keep hearing the cannon going boom, boom. And I was like, what is that? Is it like a thunder? Is it raining? And then my grandma was like, yeah, it's raining. And then later on, there were some of my uncle that came and talked to her. I can't hear the adult talking. And then they were trying to hide it from us, the kid. And then I'm like, what's going on? And then later on, she's like, oh, you know, they are testing the weapon. And I'm like, okay. And then, you know, a few hours later, we see the soldiers coming and then like just taking the cows and, you know, cattle that we have. And then like bullets everywhere. 
So it was really quick, it was a quick turn and I was just so confused, you know, first of all, just hearing a lot of guns because in my village, we, nobody have a gun. I don't even remember anybody owning a gun except when my dad come with his soldiers and they will have a gun. And when they have a gun, they will like shoot three bullet in the air. And it's just like, kind of like, oh, and then they're like, oh, the soldiers are coming and it's to let the villagers know. So yeah, so it was so quick, like knowing those three normal bullets that I shoot in the air versus like it would just run like everywhere. You just hear the gun going dum, 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 boom, 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 boom. And um, yeah, that was really, it was really scary and shocking at the same time too, not knowing where to go. So that first day we ran really quick to the purse and we're hiding there for a while, thinking that we'll be back in the middle of a night and then it just keep going. So we actually spent a night in the forest and it was, uh, it was a flooding season. And actually when we done later, you can even look up now like South Sudan flood pictures. There is a flood happening now. The one that happened in 91 is kind of reoccurring now and you will see like the water come to your chairs, you know? Mm. So in the whole time we were just in the water. So you call and you're checking. And um, so the next day we came back home to our, we came back home to our village. And then all we just saw was a disaster, like uh, house have been set on fire. There's bullets on the wall. Um, the cows are not there anymore. Um, it was just chaotic. And then my grandmother was, you know, try to go. There was, uh, so when the water was happening, she managed to like hide something. So there were cones and beans and sorghum. So she tried to make them sorghum powder, make us dinner that night. We eat it. And then the next day it happened again, where it was just coming as a wave of soldiers just going through the villages. And that time, you know, they were taking girls that were like teen, like 10, 11, 12, 13, they will take them. They didn't take little girl, but the one that can walk, they were taking them and all of that craziness. And then that's when my grandmother said that night, like, hey, you know what, to my uncle, like I have seen tribal war before and I have never seen anything like this. This is something mm. else, you know, they're using big machine guns. And when the tribal war was fought, it was with a spear, you know? So when you spear, when you throw a spear, it probably will like land on one person, but like with the, with a gun, you can take down hundreds, you know? So it's just like, this is not a war that I know. And the war that I know, even the elders from different tribe will come together and convene, but this war is, I never seen a war where they are like trying to take children or beat up women or thing like that. Normally they are looking after men, but this war is different. So you take Rebecca and the rest of the kid and just keep going north, keep walking. Um, and when things get better, she's like, I'm not going to join you because I think part of it, she knew that maybe she will slow us down. I don't really know what was her decision of not coming with us, but she was just like, I'm going to be here. I'm going to try to fix the garden and um, fix whatever that is left. And you can come back when things are safe, probably in a month, but just take children to safety. Mm. So we left the second day. So the first day was chaotic. The second day that it was keep coming as a wave that evening and night, my grandmother said, you guys have to go. So we left in the middle of night. It was pitch black. 
couldn't see anything. Again, this is a village with no electricity, you know. And so my uncle probably just, I don't know, like um, the only thing I saw that night was like star. And I think, and he, I remember before the war, he will like, we will just lay down. And, and if you've been in Africa and uh, the, the galaxy and the Milky Way is so powerful, it's so bright, you see. So I think he was using the star as guiding like where he's going because there was no electricity. Mm. Yeah. Rebecca, each of those invasions was marked by loss for you personally. Your mom was in labor at the time of the first invasion, if I remember correctly. And you, you lost not just your mom, but your baby sister as well. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So like just before the 91 attack, there was a, uh, an attack that happened early. And that's that attack, they did not kill anybody from my family. My mother just went into labor and people were running all day. And I think like just running and her trying to have a baby and bleeding too much and didn't go to like the, um, we didn't have a hospital, but we do have like women uh, that are doulas from the village that are trained to like deliver babies. And they were not there because mm. everybody just running, right? So that's when I lost my mother. And then we came back and things were like relatively calm for like another year or two. And then that big one came. Yes. So yeah, each attack had been marked by lost. So the first one was my, my mother and the baby sister. And then the second one was like being separated from my grandmother who raised me. She was like my mother and uh, living with uncle family. Mm-hmm. You, you told you tell a story in the book that's just chilling. Uh, you give this um, this picture of you and I think a friend after your mother's death and and she was buried and you get garden tools because this this is your first experience with death and you don't quite understand what it means. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did and tried to do? Yeah. So this was like the first time with death. I never even knew like people die or like. I heard that when, uh, like later on, when I was older here in the U.S., I asked, like, were there people that die in the village? And they're like, yeah, there were people. But in my culture, they don't allow children or even unmarried people. They don't go to the burial um, ceremony. So I, it didn't make sense to me. I just, but then my friend told me, like, hey, you know what? I heard that, like, they put you down there. But if you, if you, we can free your mother because if we can dig her out, she can come out. She's probably just hiding down there. And she's a child like me, too. You know, she doesn't know. So I say, oh, okay, that's a good idea. And I, I heard, you know, like I saw my grandmother digging. So we went and took the tool garden and started digging at the, at the grave which is in my culture back then would be just like something untouchable, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so my grandmother started crying. And, and actually, I think it was like a week later, we left that place to a different village. Mm-hmm. Mm. Because she just break my, his, her heart and she know that I don't understand. Mm-hmm. So you're with your uncle the night you, you're fleeing from your village, thinking you'll, you'll be back in a couple of weeks or potentially a month. Where did you go? So we start going, you know, like to the, they, they were telling us that we're going to the nearby village. And then we uh, reached to that village. And then there was a wave because it was keep coming after us, right? So we will hear guns. And then my uncle will be like, okay, we died to the poorest quick to hide. 
And then when they came, because they were coming in a wave, when they, the soldiers go, we came back again and they start walking and kind of like a zigzag, like I described, like it will be like walking through the villages and sometimes walking through the forest to avoid um, all of that. And to be honest with you, we did not know where we were going. We thought mm. that we were going, well, my uncle probably know, but when I asked him, he's like, oh, we're just going to go to the next village and then uh, maybe at the end of the week, we will be back again in our village. And I say, okay. So we just kept going and we kept going. And I say that, you know, what was going to be a few days away from home turned to weeks away from home. And weeks turned to months and months turned to a year where finally I'm finding myself at the border of Southern Sudan. Then now it's South Sudan. It was Southern Sudan. Now I'm finding myself at the border of Southern Sudan and Kenya at a place called Lokichokyo. And then that was the first time I heard the word refugee, like I described in the book. And I was like, where I would, like, what is this place? It looked different. The people look different. You know, Kenyan people are a little bit lighter than, than you know, like South Sudanese are nilotic, uh, especially Dinka tribe and other tribe, like the Nue tribe. So they're really tall and dark, really, really dark. And then in Kenya, we're seeing people like medium and lighter. So I was like, what is this place? And they're like, oh, it's a country called Kenya. And I'm like, oh, but why are we here? I thought we we're going to go back to our village. And my uncle like, there's no village for us anymore. It's not safe there. We just, uh, but the UN will take care of us. So I'm like, what is UN? And she tried to explain it. And it's like, now we are going to be a refugee. And we were given, you know, um, identification card. We just have a number on it. And it doesn't even have your name on it. And so I'm like, what is a refugee? And he's like, somebody that is kicked out of the country. So most of the time when I talk to people, I'm like, the refugee itself, it's like nobody choose, nobody choose to leave home unless home is not safe. And so for most people, even to find themselves as a refugee or immigrant or something like that, is like... Uh, you are just made to most of the like I tell people that like there are there is a different I feel like people don't even know the difference between refugee and immigrants. Immigrants mm. is somebody that actually kind of premeditate or somehow make a decision like, hey, I'm living here in Holland, Michigan or in Grand Rapids. It's no longer safe for me anymore. So I'm going to migrate to, you know, I don't know, to Texas or like California and to do you know like it might be a difficult decision for you to make and it might cause your life or some cause their life trying to make it uh, but at least they thought about it a refugee that decision is made for you mm. because most of the time you are sleeping and you're waking up with like your house on fire or guns everywhere and you just really have to escape and I feel like sometimes people don't understand all of these terms because they become like politicalized and people don't really get it. Like what, why exactly would somebody, mm. because in my mind, like now I'm in Holland, like why in the world would I just, you know, unless something make me leave, why would I leave my beautiful home and people I have known and my comfort to just go and work for a month for what? Like normal people don't do that, right? Mm. Um, so yeah, so those are the circumstances that, um, you know, surround that. And even 
refugee and immigrant themselves when they become refugee and immigrant they don't even know what those words are they are made they are put on them and then they try to live with it because that's the new identity so rebecca tell me a little bit about this refugee camp in kenya what was life like how long did you live there so uh, i arrived in 92 ending of 92 becoming 93 um that refugee camp was just a desert, right? It was not resettled. We were the first people there. So it was just tents everywhere. A lot of tents that the UN had give to the refugee to sit down. It was so hot, like 115 degrees or even more, oh, I think. Wow. Um, it was a desert. And um, I just remember arriving there and I was like, what? Like, this is me. Like, I grew up for like, from ages zero to six, I was in a village that is so green, it's large, even during dry season, there's still, the Nile is not far, you know. So it was so dry, there were no rivers or no nothing, there were no boreholes, they just had a tank, like a, a, a water tank that come and people would line up to, to get water from there. And then later on, they had installed like boreholes um, where people settle. So in the beginning, it was just chaotic, you know, it was just like a huge camping ground with no rules, you know, like people, you just find a spot and then you, you are given a tent and then you go and put your tent down. And when you go to that tent during the day, it's so hard, you start dripping, you know, and so you open it up and then when you open it up, the, it's a desert, right? So the sand, the desert the stone sand will go in and and in the evening when you're trying to cook it's all covered with sand you know it was just like a disaster in the beginning mm -hmm. but then you know my uncle again told us hey we're going to be here for a few months and hopefully we will go back home and then you know we are into our five years now in a refugee camp and so going back home start fading away and so we make Akuma home and that's when the UN start building a refugee school Sometimes they are functioning, sometimes they are not because they are our teachers and sometimes they don't get paid. So they show up sometimes, sometimes they don't show up. Um, so that was my life. But then, you know, as a child, you know, children are resilient. You know, when you give them a new environment, as long as they have loved and a little bit of protection, they can they kind of start to, you know, to, to, to be comfortable in the new environment. And for me, having my friends, you know, going to boreholes, going to the distribution center where you go and give your card and you get a scoop of rice or beans. They become a fun activities. And of course, playing like finding a rack clothes and like making that as a ball or something, you know, just having fun and playing. So it become home for me. So I was at Kakuma refugee camp for eight years before I came to United States. Actually, wow. So today, November 6, 2000, that's when I arrived in the United States. So I guess today is my 20th anniversary. Oh my goodness, happy anniversary. Yep, so today is my 20th year's anniversary in the U.S., yep. So eight years in this camp in Kenya. What I, so many things are happening at the same time. You, you were a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus um, back home mm -hmm. in Sudan. Uh, but you're also developmentally, you're, you're going from a six-year-old, so now eight years added on to that. So, but you're, you're surrounded by, by people who've been displaced, all those things happening at the same time. How were you processing or interpreting 
your, your faith in this Jesus guy in the midst of all this, uh, all this hardship you're experiencing? Yeah. So I would say that like in, in a village, I have heard of Jesus, but mostly from my dad. My grandmother was not a believer. But like when I look back into her way of living, I think she was a believer. I think she just didn't give it a name because like, I just remember she's the first and I will always say my grandmother is the first humanitarian that I know mm. because like she will give us dinner at night and we will eat. And then she go back to cook. And then I say, grandma, why are you cooking? And she's like, oh, it's for visitors. And I'm like, what visitors? It's like, oh, people that come like in a minute. Because again, this is a village. We don't have hotels. So like if somebody is traveling, either to go to the next village for a wedding or somebody is sick, the relative, they normally just come and knock at the door and they will, and then my grandmother will put a torch on to see who is that person and will welcome them and spend a night with us and eat our food. So she will do that every night. And she will always talk of the creator, the creator, the creator, the creator that do good, the creator that is just, all of those things I grew up hearing them. But I, you know, it wasn't called Jesus, you know, in her term. So Jesus, like becoming a believer and knowing Jesus actually was in Kakuma refugee camp that was introduced to me. There was a, a church there, a local church. It was just basic. it was just made of like uh, mud rolls, you know, like raw of just mud. You put a mud there so people can sit. Those were our chairs. We didn't have chairs. And then it was just like fenced in with like... Um, grass or thorn sometime and then there was a pastor that will talk up there but that pastor was the only bible that i see that he carried the eye so i grew up not even like touching a bible because there were no bibles and it was only the pastor that happened and when they start coming probably those in a leadership that had them but not everybody yeah so kakuma refugee camp is actually where i become a believer i would say you know i have heard of jesus from my dad but where I really become to dig in was like Kakuma, where we will go there every day dancing and then somebody will like uh, read a Bible or somebody will like teach a song that is mostly, and I think now when I think back, mostly I did read, right? So everything was done in a song form, but it was taken out of Bible, you know? It was like biblical verse, but praise in a song. And uh, now when I look back, I was like, what a genius way to do it because there were no Bibles available for everybody. So they have to come up with a song to remember Bible verses like Christmas song and, you know, um, you know, um, in the resurrection songs. And now when I read back and, and, and sing them in my own language, and then I'm like, wow, that's basically out from this book, I can say it's out from Matthew, and it's like from here, but it was passed down as some. And it makes sense because not everybody had a chance to read or like have Bibles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was Kakuma that I become a believer. And I think for me, what really drawn me close to the person of Christ is his life, you know. I, uh, I didn't have a word for it then, but as I grow older, because like people talk about like him being kicked out from his country, you know, to go to Egypt. So basically Jesus was a refugee. It was an involuntary thing where he had to just get out like with his mom and dad in the middle of night because he was going to be killed, right? 
So I find comfort in his story. And to me, it makes sense. And then because I was, like you say, what was going on in your mind when you are a child? You're like, why did I leave my village? And you start internalizing it. But when I hear the history of Jesus and they say Jesus left home and went there and then when he came back, Jesus was always a person that didn't feed in. And so his history makes sense to me because I was not feeding in, you know, like I left my village. I'm now in a refugee camp. I'm being called a refugee and I, but I have a name, you know, I just become a number and I identification number, but I know my name. Like I say in my book, my uncle was set me down and let me read my genealogy. So those things were so confusing, but the person of Christ and his history was making sense to me. So if, if I was not a Christian and was just reading it as a book, it would be like if when people say, what was the book of your childhood life that made your life? And I would say to me, it was the Bible and the song. Because every time I hear of this person, a person that these things are done to, but is still loved, people and humanity, I just kept falling in love with him more and more until today, right? Um, the teaching of Christ is what, what motivated me to keep going with life. People have asked me many times, how did you keep faith with everything that happened in your life? Why did you have to be faithful? And I say that, well, one thing is that suffering and um, hardships are not what God created us to endure, but God himself is not intimidated by sin or suffering. He have never been intimidated about that. And we have seen it where he literally was killed and rose again. And so he's not intimidated by, by, by death or by sin. His main thing is to bring us close to his heart and, and change our heart. And that's what the gospel is about. And so sometimes, and this is what I say too, I say to myself when I want to do things and they're not going my way, I say that, you know what, the world is God's mission from the beginning of time. He will accomplish his will whether I'm in it or I am not. Because I feel sometimes as a Christian, we feel like we have a responsibility somehow to protect God or like to depend it. Like, then it's not God. Like, he is a God of justice and he will speak at the end. And so we are not here to take his place. We are simply here to, to just model it and to, to live our lives in, in a, a life of humility and to listen and to bless and to cry when we want to cry because there are injustices sometimes that are too overwhelming. It's okay to express those. Mm. Yeah. Okay, Rebecca, tell me the next part of the story. You said 20 years ago today, actually, after eight years in the refugee camp, you traveled to the States. How did that come about? And where did you go? Yep. So that was, um, um, there's a man that had asked my uncle Hans in marriage to marry me. And of course, I was underage. And so one of my teachers was telling me and say that, you know what, you are one of the brightest students in my class. And I don't want you to get married. Um, there's this program that is granted by United States government and is to bring in um, the lost boys of Sudan and lost girls of Sudan um, to United States. And the qualification is that you are an orphan. You don't have mom and dad. And I know you are an orphan. You are being raised by your uncle family. 
I think you are too young and I know you are bright. So he was telling me, but if you go to United States, I know you are ambitious and I know you have dream of education. You love school. You can continue your school. So he took me to the UN compound and I apply. And then, uh, so beginning of 2000, so it took like pretty much like a whole, whole year or more. Um, it was more for others people. So it took a long time because you have to do interviews and they have to do medical checkup and they had to send somebody here from, I don't know, State Department or Homeland Security, do another interview. And the interviews are so long and a lot of people didn't make it because when you go, if you are nervous or like nobody to translate, like for me, they try, like I didn't know English, they have to translate what I say. Um, so if you have a wrong translation or something like that, some people, the interview get messed up and they never make it. So anyway, I made it into the program and then I arrived in November 6 of 2000 by Bethany Christian Services. And Bethany Christian Services uh, found a family for me in Holland. Um, Lennis and Rachel Baggage were the people that opened up their home to take me in because I came as an unaccompanied refugee child, uh, 15 going to 16, I had to live with a family. But uh, some people that arrived when they were 18 years old were in independent living. And those people, they had like a three month of assistance uh, from the government um, with housing and food. And then after that, you have to find a job. And actually, all of those people that came as 18 and above, after three months and find a job, you, they pay back the ticket to the government when they came here. So that's another thing. It's just hard, you know. Like, you, you literally, like, this is what I say. When you come to the New Land, I had no, I didn't know anybody. Those people who came as above, they don't have relative, they don't have connection. You just, so you are literally like a toddler. You are like, a three-month-old three person in a new environment. You didn't have a car. You need to know how to ride, drive a car, ensure all of those overwhelming American lives. And you have to pay your apartment. You have to pay your food. So it is really, really hard. Uh, but for me, uh, the, the, the benefit is that, like, through Bethany Christian Services, they were paying my rent you know, through my family and money for my food. So I did not have like the the hardship like those who came at 18 where they only were given three months and then after that you are on your own to figure yeah. out. Oh, that's unbelievable. I just I just can't imagine as an eighteen year old trying to pay rent and navigate a whole new culture, a whole new world. So Rebecca, tell me about life in the States. You were welcomed by the baggage family, but also started going to school and became part of a church family, if I remember correctly. Can you tell us about some of the people you met and, and who was it who welcomed you? Yeah, so it was, uh, so I started going to school like in December. That's when I went to school, Holland Christian High School. And um, at that point, it was Kathy Bentol and Mrs. Debbie Benstra. Um, because, like, my English was, like, maybe, like, a third grade or, like, a fourth grade English, but I'm a high school age. So they, and I think at that time, the Holland Christian did not have, like, an ESL. Um, 
classes going on, like running. So I remember like that first December, I just sat down with them and they will read to me. And then they will give me some tests, you know, to try to help me like to determine like where I would be. And for a while I was like taking English in the ESL classes. And then I start like a turning, uh, turning like, uh, like history and um, Bible classes with Ray Vanderland. Um, so yeah, the other stuff, like later on, like a year later, I was able to like attend like choir with Mr. Bird and choir class was really cool for me because I <laughs> it was the only place I felt free, you know, and somebody was telling me later on, you know, actually singing help because it helped me when I sing with a lot of people and then I will not be shy because of my accent. And because I had a broken English. I did not, I was shy to speak, but then every time when there's a song and I can read the word, I will sing on top of my lungs. And so that class was like a breakthrough for me to mm. just like be there and sing with people. And there's just something about music is universal. So that class really helped me a lot. And Kathy and Miss, Mrs. Manstra, they were, um, Catherine Bentol, they were just so kind and they were taking their time to teach me and then it was through that I met uh, friends, um, Karen Gansing and uh, Megan Guinan, and then um, Amy Schokader and Bestie and a few others girls. They, they just like start, you know, sitting with me, inviting me. Like when you go, like during line time, you will sit on the lawn. And then so they will invite me to come and sit with them in a circle. And, you know, they will do a lot of talking and then I will just be listening. But it was a good gesture that they were like including me. Uh, they were asking, where are you from? Probably because her, my, my foster sister, Teresa from Sudan, later joined me, but probably I was the only darkest person like in there. So it was really cool to be welcome. Holland Christian, for me, it was a positive experience. However, if I have to go back now and give advice to school, I would say that like you have to have somebody that understand people that come from like outside, like have an experience or at least uh, because there's just so much, like sometime when you, when you have so much change and a lot going on, it's hard to put it in words. Mm. But if you have a person that have the background of understanding, they can help you guide. For example, the first week of going to school and the bell ring, right? To change classes. Well, in the refugee camp, we only have one class. And when a bell rings, the teacher, the teachers change. The teacher exit and the next teacher come in. You don't change classes. So when the bell ring at Holland Christian that first day, and everybody just stand up like at one like big time. And I was like, what are we being attacked? Like to me, I associate like people just writing with like danger, right? Mm -hmm. And so like I student are just getting up and people like, like because here in, in back in Africa, students are so respectful of teachers, even if they time in and the teacher don't exit first, you can't even get up. So it was like, to me, the bell ring, and then the student just stood up and like, and then I was trying to get out too. And then like the lockers opening and people are like touching everywhere. And I was like, is this a, a tag? Like what's going on? And I was scared that day. But if I had somebody that were like telling me or train me like when it's your first day of school here are the thing they might be different from where you come those things help and they go a long way you mm. know mm. Um, yeah 
after Holland Christian, you went to Calvin College and continued your, your academic journey. Can you tell us a little bit about how you were reflecting on some of the big questions that, frankly, as I read your book, I think about questions like, how can God be good after all the things you experienced? How can you say, and if someone was to ask you, Rebecca, you experienced the loss, I mean, just indescribable tragedy. Um, You were treated, uh, I don't even have a word. How can God be good? What do you say when asked that question? I would say again, God is good. God is good. God give us choices to make, right? People make war. God, I'd never seen God coming down and create a war or mistreating people. God is always kind and is a God of justice. And like in, um, you know, Jeremiah will say, I have plans for you, plans to protect and make you prosper. Um, I think that's a heart of God. And not even like in a whole testament. The whole testament is is full of humans. When I say full of humans, it's full of bad people that God have been redeeming. You know, we are called the you know Father Abraham, for example, is uh, is our father of faith. But that guy was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like like try even like I'm just saying even with Sarah, like traveling with her and then trying to like sell her off and saying that this is not my wife is my sister because he was scared. He wanted to protect himself. But like, I think the guy had the issue a little bit, but like God mm. is still bless him. Right. <laughs> God is still bless him. And God know, like God know he's trying and know his heart. Right. And so when people say, how can you believe there's a good God after all of this thing happened? The frank idea that God himself is a good God. He gives us a choice to make. We can choose to, to start war. We can choose to bring peace. Like Nelson Mandela, for example, a man that was jailed for many years and came back and choose the peaceful way. We have here in the United States, Martin Luther King, a guy that chose to go a peaceful way instead of taking guns and things like that. So people are the issue. And I think that's why in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God is always not going after our wealth or our look or our whatever. He's always going after our hearts. And when our hearts align with him, God's goodness can be seen. And I get it. I, can ne- I will never like mimic it, like to say, oh, God is good all the time because some people can see God, not goodness, if, if, if people that, say they are people of the world or people of humanity, if they don't see them being a model like doing God, like so how they're going to believe in a God they don't see that is good when they present, um, when things that are present in their life is not good. And I get that. And I think for me, I told you in the beginning, it was like my grandmother and people that loved me. So I kind of had a foundation of knowing that like there is good and people are good, but it's still people can be monsters too. Like where you have soldiers that are doing things that are just like unheard of and so inhumane. Um, so I think it's like separating God from humans and to know that deep down we are fallen people. When you understand that, it shouldn't be a question of like, is God good? Because I think God is good all the time. It has 
who are not good. And when I say has, I mean all humanity, people of the world and people that are not people of the world, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Amen. Amen. So Rebecca, Kelvin College and beyond, tell us a little bit about your story in the States and what God has been up to in your life and in your, the life of your family and, and including the desire to, to finally tell your story and to actually put down to page what's your experiences. How did that all come about? Yeah, so yeah, after Calvin, um, I went on to Cornerstone actually and get my master's there and then got married, worked for a while. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then it was, it was like, um, when I decided to write my, th- th- there are certain events in each of us life that, that make you pause and then trying to ask a question. And to me, like at that time, when I decided to write my book, I was expecting my son and getting the nursery ready and getting the room ready. And then, um, so that was 2016. And I would say, tell you from 2016 till now, actually, I don't have a TV anymore. Mm. And then I was just watching the news and like the way children at the U.S. border and like kids being separated from families. And all of that. And I think it just triggers something. Like when I was watching that news, it triggers something when I was leaving my home village. And just like the desperation of like, or even when I get lost when we were running with my uncle, I was just seeing, just looking at the kid faces. I can just see that like in in the eye. Like they don't have a word yet to describe it, but it's like, where is my family? And he's just freaking out. Um so at that time, I was like, okay, you know, I, I have been asked before by my high school teachers, by my college teachers, by my graduate school teachers, maybe one day you should write. But I didn't want to write part of it. It's like, you know, it's bringing back memories and relieving those things, which they were already there, but the whole idea of sitting and writing them was too overwhelming for me. And it was at that moment that I was like, okay, I have to write my story because one day, one time, you know, my children might ask me first, like, why did you even come here? And it was just watching those news that triggered in me. And I was also was like, I want to share my story to let people know that, you know what, things happen in life that people don't have a control over, but we can be big part of mending and restoring that brokenness or whatever that is that went wrong. And um, so that's when I decided to share my story. One thing that I keep telling people too is that at that point, I had come to a place of healing where I had reconciled with my my, uh, suffering and, and the thing that I went through so sometimes it's good for people to not write into things. It's good that actually you are in a space that is healthy and that you feel you can cheer. And I was at that stage. And also what I find as I was writing and taking me to those memories back then and everything, it was, it was you know, it was telling me, I was finding that I am actually more like those things would become like more healing for me as I was like rewriting it. And also through it, 
I even come closer to my creator where I was like, wow, in my whole life, I had so many angels that God have put in every path of my life. Whether I know it or I don't, it was, you know, was my teacher, you know, that say, hey, you are young. You have to apply for this. It was maybe my translator. It was like through Bethany, finding me a family. It was like, you know, people, friends that show up in school and welcome me in this uh, circle. Because like at that time at Holland Christian, that's the time that I had, uh, I had a baby when I was in high school as a result of something that happened in a refugee camp before. But you, you are there from Holland Christian, like thing like that just don't happen there. But to be welcome and still accepted, it was like, and still go to school there as a teenager. There were just a lot of, um, a lot of things that were going on in my mind. I'm trying to make sense. But the whole idea of being like, we all belong here. You can be a mother, but be in high school, finish your high school. That goes a long way. And those are the things that people should focus on because life is not a cut cookie. You're not going to find a society that is always perfect or always like this thing, but you have to, to provide a space where all feel belong. Mm. And to me, that was a, a positive experience. And that's pretty much what, why, what gave me encouragement to finish high school. Versus, let's say, for example, if I was in a high school that I was bullied or something like that, like, of course, I would not make it, you know? But, you know, first of all, like, I feel like looking back now, like I wish I had made more friends, but like I didn't have a language, but the few friends that I made makes different in my life. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah. Okay, you've got a three-year-old and a four-year-old now, Rebecca. Uh, your, your, your years, starting at age six, took a turn of terror and trauma. What, what do you hope as you're raising children yourself now? What are your hopes for your children? Faith is very important for me. So I hope my children will always feel close to the creator. Uh, Thus, I try to model that in my life of like how I talk to people. Uh, I hope for my children, this is one of the things because like my children are biracial, right? Um, So I teach them in the culture that I grew up, like you, you take people for the way they are. I don't know they probably will face a different issues than I did. I'm a black woman. I have children that are biracial. That is the identity. The identity is probably not going to be my identity. And they're probably going to ask questions that I have never was able to ask. And as a black person too, like this is what I tell people, I'm a black person that grew up in my culture, in Africa, predominantly African culture until I was 15. So even when I came to United States and have to deal with a lot of things that were like so new to me, early on when I arrived in the state, I did not internalize a lot. But then as you you think, keep coming up and think, you're like, oh, I'm different or you are mine, you are different either in a box that you sign, you have to be this person now. My whole life that I was in Africa, I never feel anything in, let's say you are African or African-American or whatever. But here in the U.S., you have everything in a box. You have to feel in. And so for my children, I want them to honor both of the, you know, God, nobody chooses who their parents are. They didn't choose who their parents are. 
I want them to, 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 to be comfortable in their own skin, to be comfortable to ask questions that are surrounding their identity. I will do my best to, to, to help them. But I will do my best too to find people that, that are biracial like them, that can help them. They're, they're, you know, people need to be wise in knowing that like my children's struggle is, is not my struggle and my struggle is not my kid. And so like I'm trying my best to bring those kids up to know. And also one thing I want that is big in my head is the issues of justice. You know, I want my kid to know um, when to stand up when something is wrong and when to ask God when, when, when you need his wisdom. Because he's a real, he is the true honest one of that deep honest wisdom. I want them to know that. But if they choose to not do that, I still want them to be decent people, right? Mm. So for example, you know, like my son the other day, he's like, oh, I want this and I want this and I want this. And I'm like, well, you can have this one, but not that one. And he cried for a little bit. I'm like, no, we're going to give that one to somebody else. And I want them to know that the world doesn't revolve around them. There's millions of people in the world that God loved just like them, you know? And I need them to have a sense that like, they are lucky to have to be born to a family that can afford their needs, their basic needs. A lot there are some people that struggle to do that. So to keep it short, I really want them to understand the world and and to love it and to be there. Um, uh, hopefully, they can understand that the the biggest command in the Bible or in humanity is that God say love. Uh, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So if you wish good thing to happen to you, if you wish to be in safety, if you wish to be having food, if you have to be in a warm house, love your neighbor the same way. Say, love your neighbor as yourself. So I hope that as they grow up, they can model that thing in their life, wherever they are. I don't know where they will be or what they will be doing, but I hope that they can love their neighbor as themselves and mm. love themselves too because they are image bearers of God. Amen. Mm-hmm. Rebecca, the title of your book, What They Meant for Evil, that's a line taken from the Joseph story, right? How, why did you choose that as the title? And what do you see as the connection between Joseph's story and your own? Yes, um, yep, that's a Joseph story, exactly. Uh, what they meant for evil. Um, when we were coming up with the title, I thought up a lot of things because again, like you seen, my life was normal till I was six years old and then suddenly everything changed. So I had to deal with a lot of, you know, question and identity and who, who am I? Am I Sudanese? Am I a refugee? Am I now uh, immigrants? When I came here to the US, that was my status for a while. I became a American citizen. Now my South Sudanese America, like there's a lot of things, right, that I was asking. But all of those things, they come with their own baggage of things, right? In Holland, I was, except, most people were kind to me, but I encountered countless racism, like straight racism, that there was no exception or what. For example, when I was admired, somebody, I was in line and somebody just looked at me and was like, oh, you immigrant, you want to steal my information back away. And I was like, what? Mm. I couldn't believe my ears. But that's not everybody, right? But there were just things like that. that be, and then that's, what, that's when I was telling you I had a black privilege, like I used to not internalize. But then I started internalizing, like, why would somebody just say that to me? Is it because I'm different? Like, why? Uh, 
So yeah, so 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 those were the things that um, that I was considering as I was writing the title of my book, you know, because there were different times where people make a decision for me and put me in a box. It's like what they meant for evil. Like Joseph brothers, they sold him. They think that he's better off to be a slave or to die. Actually, they left him to die, and then God used people to get him, and then he went there. And also, I say they, like they in that title include me, myself, but because there was a time that I was somehow convened or trying to entertain those voices, right, that say, you are not love, you are this, you are this, you are immigrant, you are a refugee, you are illiterate, you are a girl, you will be giving up for a child married, that's where you belong, and all of those cultural stuff. It doesn't matter if they were like American culture or African culture or refugee culture. They were to diminish me as an image bearer of God. And for me to even try to entertain it, I am in that title, they, what they meant for evil. Like Joseph, when he went there to Egypt, his brothers came finally, right? And then they were afraid that he will revenge or do something bad to them. And he's like, what, what do you mean for evil? God turned it for good, the saving of many lives. And the big person in that title is the Sudan government, where it began, where the Sudan government was responsible of displacing me. It was responsible of killing my mom and my baby sister. It was responsible of like killing my dad and my grandmother and making me the refugee, the rest of the the evil that was done later on is is a consequence of that first one. So, but now a lot of the South Sudanese, American or Canadian are the one going back, you know, with the American friend or the Canadian friend, they are the one that are giving back, building the school, providing a building hospital, helping uh, sick people in a refugee camp, giving back food. So it's like, what you meant for evil? Like what was meant by the government in the beginning to, to just destroy villages, to just kill children and to make countless children parentless and that they will walk for mile and mile. Like what was meant for evil? God turned it for good where they now most of majority of us are like in western countries well our home like for me i'm american i consider myself american but i'm still responsible because of either because of survival guilt where i was like oh i made it but a lot of people didn't make it so i have to be responsible which i did before where i would just walk and send everything that i earned back uh, which was not healthy, you know, because I was just responding of like, uh, I made it, therefore I should be this. But now I'm in a healthy place where I'm like, yeah, I made it. And there's a reason that God made me made it. And God want me to have a car and a house so that I can go to work. And yes, I can help others, people. So I'm now in a healthy thing. So that's where the title, what they meant for evil come from. Mm. And, it, and it was an encouragement too, to me, to my readers. It's like, you can manage evil to yourself. A lot of people can manage evil to you. Society can, cultures can, religion can, whatever it is, your case is, it's like God will see you through it. Because again, it goes back to that question, like why do you believe in God? When the, God himself is a God of justice and he will always see people through. He will always, he will never leave his people alone, you know. Mm. Oh, amen. He will work by our side. Mm-hmm. Last question for you, Rebecca. Um, 
suffering takes on many forms. What, what, what would you say, having experienced such, such depths of suffering yourself, what would you say to someone walking that path now? What, what message do you have for someone experiencing living in suffering right now? What I will tell them is that know that God loved you. There is, there is no amount of shame or suffering that is, is intimidating to God. I think that's what I will tell that person. So I will tell them too to feel whatever they are feeling. If they're feeling sad and all of that, like it's okay. Our God is a God of emotions. And I feel my upbringing, my Dinka uh, culture doesn't value a lot of uh, emotion. And so is Christian. I find here being a Christian and evangelical, like people always praise like positive uh, emotion but negative emotion are considered like if you are questioning God then it's like somehow you are not good now or wh- how dare you know God want to be questioned because in the Bible it say that like when bad things happen you have to cry out you have to say why me why are you doing this I just want to die like Job that is okay those emotions are to be expressed just like if my baby my son that is four or my three-year-old if they cut themselves or burn themselves, they will come to me to cry. I don't say, don't cry, I'm here, and it will heal. No, I have to hold them. So I will tell them, feel whatever emotion you want to feel now, but know at the end of the day, there is no suffering or a shame. If you're feeling shame of your suffering, that God is intimidated. God is there, is working with you. Another thing I will encourage them is that find people that are just there to hear you, you know. Uh, people to not prescribe things like, oh, you need to be, you just moved on now and all of these. And I even like, I, I tell people like American culture, our culture, we are so bad at, at dealing with brokenness. We don't know. We either get priests or we don't even know how to function. And, and they have to come, you know, our culture need to know how to deal with pain. Like pain is it's something to just sit on. That's okay. And But love people. Love people well through it. And one thing that helped me in a refugee camp when we were receiving news and news of family members losing is our neighbors literally moving in with us for a week and let us cry and they cook for us. And, you know, sometimes you will, you will, you will cry and they didn't even have napkin. And so the, somebody will use their clothes to wipe your face and all of that it was so raw and organic, but loving. And so like when I came here to the U.S. too, for the first time, I remember crying or, or like seeing people crying. And then somebody just reached out to the tissue and handed it to me or to the other person. And I was like, and to me, that like to me, I was like that kind of saying, hey, put it away. You're making us uncomfortable versus where I come from. If you feel like you want to be cry and be messy and all of that, and there's even there's even a season if you lose a family member, you wear black clothes and people will know you are mourning. That's okay. Mourning is ugly, and it it is to be embraced and not to be embarrassed about. But God is seeing you through it. I think that's what I would say to a person that's going through suffering, and eventually healing will come. That's another thing I would say. Healing will come it will come with time. And lastly, I will end it with like, there's a Japanese poetry where they they take broken things. So if there's a broken glass or a broken bowl or a cup, they will take um, 
they, they, they will take a gold or um, gold or silver and then uh, pour it where, where the thing broke and put it together. So when you look at the poetry or like the pot, you see all the cracks lining, but they are lined with gold or silver. And then they say that the object itself become more, more expensive and, um, and kind of value because of its brokenness being meant together. And I think that's what our God is. He's a God of meeting us where we are and, and fixing us. Brokenness is okay. That's another thing I would say. Brokenness is okay because this is not our home and we, we, we are going to break. Rebecca, just such incredible wisdom that you're sharing with us. I'm so grateful for this conversation. I'm also really grateful for your book, What They Meant for Evil, How a Lost Girl of Sudan Found Healing, Peace and Purpose in the Midst of Suffering. I just can't, can't strongly recommend that enough. Thank you for joining us for this conversation, Rebecca. Thank you so much, Brian. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And please go out there, be kind to yourself and your neighbor. If you enjoyed today's conversation, make sure you subscribe to the Lighting a Fire podcast so you don't miss an episode. As always, feel free to email me with questions or ideas at bruss, B-R-U-S-S, at hollandchristian.org. In partnership with Christian Schools International, this is Lighting a Fire.